Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig. And today we're going to put you on a liquid diet, starting yeah. with the the all-time favorite, bubbly, bubbly, bubbly. Um, our, our good friend Gino Colangelo, who's president of his company, um, and knows all about uh, wines and knows all about Prosecco. So we're going to start with that. Uh, Gino Colangelo, we've been working with you <laughs> for how many years now? I forgot. Oh, gosh, <laughs> like, it must be 20, more than uh, we'd care to say, probably. Yeah, probably. But you're on for a very specific reason uh, today. It's because we're coming up to National Prosecco Week. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the second annual National Prosecco Week. Starting June 3rd, it's a national uh, promotion happening in cities all over the United States, and we're thrilled, uh, you know, Americans love Prosecco. You know, what's going to be going on? Okay, so we're going to have consumer parties like pizza and Prosecco parties and different food pairings. Uh, Prosecco's so versatile, so it goes well with Asian food, with, of course, with Italian food, with light fair. We're also going to be doing seminars for uh, sommeliers and for, for journalists to teach them more about this great wine. And we're going to be having uh, promotions and uh, online, digital promotion, as well as uh, parties and um, I- I- events with some media companies. So uh, it's quite a, quite a big week for Prosecco in the United States. Now, now let, sponsored by the Prosecco DOC Consortium. Okay, I was yeah, going to ask who was behind it. Now, Col- Colangelo and Partners, I think, isn't it? Colangelo and Partners. Yes, we're, we are the uh, Casa Prosecco. That We are the home of Prosecco DOC in the United States, uh, responsible for protecting and promoting the denomination of Prosecco DOC in the U.S. But, but, and and you're, you're in the wine business totally, right? We are totally in the wine business, wine and spirits, uh, but uh, fine wine, and it's a nice life, I, uh, <laughs> promoting, <and laughs> drinking, tasting uh, great wines from around the world and from the U.S. We're, al- we're always looking out the window to see if the Colangelo truck is pulling up. <laughs> <laughs> all you need to do is ask. There's, there's always plenty more where that wine less shipment came from. Yeah, I mean, I know, I know you were big in Spanish wines, but we've also, we also were at a, a tasting of French wines that was a number of years ago that was really great. But Yeah, you know, Italy's kind of our roots. Uh, you could probably tell by my name. It's a right, personal right. passion for myself. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, Spain and France have grown for us very nicely over the last few years, and California is coming along great as well. Yeah, I mean, you set us up on some nice uh, wine trails too. In the, like, well, the, various parts of Italy, I was telling him that that I thought that somebody was supposed to meet us in Agrigento, but it turned out they didn't meet us. But there was wine anyway, so we didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, we have to get our priorities straight. It yeah. always starts with the wine. And Agrigento is a beautiful place. The wine, uh, Sicilian wines are hot right now. Yeah, and, you know, uh, that I, is I remember, I mean, my background, if you, you probably don't remember, is Sicilian. And those are my Oh, words. that I didn't remember. Yeah, and, um, but, you know, when I first started going to Sicily, the wines were just awful. I mean, they were just awful. <laughs> <laughs> they were named after everybody's mother. Italy, but Sicily particularly. They, they were always named after somebody's mother. Do you remember that? <laughs> no, there, were, there, were, there were two that were like that. You know, Maria Costanza, and I forget the name of yeah, the other, the other one. one. And uh, yeah. so, but um, we actually sent friends of ours who were going to Sicily to well, what's his name's place? Planeta. Planeta. And, oh yeah, great winery. And yeah, and they stated that the place where we stayed, where they have uh, rooms, and then. It's sort of a communal dinner thing, and they just had a ball. He, he has a lovely, yeah, he has the, a lovely, one of the great wineries of uh, of Sicily. Yeah, he has a, he has a country house out in out in the middle of the vineyards. Uh-huh. And his his story about how Helenetta got to be where it was was always very interesting to us, and it, it's it, it it exists in many of the wine producers in Italy in the in the same way. 
he said that at one point his, his father was the head of the of the consortium of, of Italian wines in Sicily but he, he he wasn't satisfied so so he called his son in and said I'm going to give you some money and I want you to create a winery that produces fine wines out of Nero d'Avolo which nobody had ever done before and, that, and that's how the Planeta got, got, got to be where it is and, and there's stories like that all over oh, Italy. Well, that's family, exactly, that's exactly that, the thought, uh, yes. Gina, have the ambition to make great wine. Gina, what talents, I mean, there's a lot of confusion over Prosecco. Um, like, why do people not understand what it is? <laughs> you know, that's interesting. I've been working marketing Prosecco, mostly Prosecco DOC, which is a particular designation of Prosecco. For 20 years, and 20 years ago, when we introduced Prosecco to Americans, we typically got the response, oh, that's Italian champagne, and we would patiently <laughs> reply, no, it's a, a sparkling wine from the northeast region of Italy, and it's called Prosecco. It's a very specific geographic designation. Well, now, 20 years later, it's been an incredible success story, and when People say Prosecco, it's almost the generic for sparkling wine. So right. you could walk into a wine bar and say, I'll have a Prosecco, and you might get a glass of California sparkling uh, <laughs> in, unintentionally. So that's the confusion. I mean, Prosecco's just been so successful that it's become a generic for sparkling wine of sorts. Now, explain to our listeners how it's different than the other sparklers like Cava in Spain and... Uh, of course, Champagne in France and Cremant in France. I mean, what what makes what distinguishes it? From the, 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 well, there's a couple of differences. The first is the geographic designation. To be called Prosecco DOC, you need to be made in a very specific area of uh, north of Venice. Uh, two regions called uh, the Veneto and Friuli. So it yep. starts with that, and needs to be made from a very particular grape called Glera and it has to be a certain percentage. But a big difference is the way uh, it's fermented. So Prosecco is fermented in big tanks, whereas uh, Champagne and most Cava is fermented in the bottle. Oh, really? That's something I never knew. So it makes for a much fresher, fruitier, more uh, sort of rounded wine. The bubbles in Prosecco tend to be rounder than the Champagne bubbles, making it a little easier to drink. Uh, It's more affordable also, typically, than certainly than champagne, and cava has a kind of a big variation uh, in price points. Uh, but Prosecco, you get really nice Prosecco from 12 to $15 uh, and up. You can get, uh, you, you know, of course, higher, um, uh, smaller vintages and, and smaller production wines that are more expensive. But a lot of great Prosecco is right in that really nice 12 11 to $15 range. Um, very versatile, very easy to drink, balance, and I think that's why it's become so so popular here in America. And, mm. it, and it's fermented in in concrete tanks, uh, stainless steel, stainless could be steel, concrete, okay. but typically more more typically stainless steel. You know, we were we were one prosecco producer uh, in the Friuli area. It seems to me, I recall that the name started with a J, and they, mm-hmm. and they had switched over to. All stainless steel, and then and then they switched. Decided they didn't like it, so they switched back to concrete. Concrete is the more traditional, uh, you know, tanks, and uh, not just for prosecco, but throughout Italy. And a lot of producers are switching back. They just feel that it um, it gives an earthiness to the wine, and uh, uh, that that they like. Now, how do how do you pair it with food? Here's, here's, a, here's another question that always plagues people who don't know their wines very well. Yeah, I mean, the, the nice thing about Prosecco is you almost can't go wrong. So if you, if you, let's say you go to a restaurant and you want to start with a wine that's light, low in alcohol, uh, which is also a trend. Americans are drinking lower alcohol wines and Prosecco's typically 105 to 12%. Um, but you can have that glass of Prosecco without any food, or you could have it with uh, just a, a, a kind of an appetizer, let's say a bruschetta or something like that. 
And you might want to switch to uh, a bigger red wine, depending on what you're ordering. But if you're having a piece of fish or you're having a, a pasta with, uh, with, with a sort of butter and cheese, like I said, say, a butter and sage sauce, something like that, Prosecco appears really nicely. Also, Asian food. Like I, last night, I was uh, having Korean food, and I love uh, Prosecco with uh, with Asian food. We I think agree. It, it, yeah, it's good. It, yeah, it really we agree, it, yes. it cuts the spiciness and uh, and it really balances out some of the, some of the more exotic spices that you might get in Asian Asian food. No, there's a local Zechuan restaurant here that lots and lots of people like, and we've we've been there a couple of times, and we all we always take Prosecco because it. Because it yeah. it takes the edge, takes the harsh edge off of the food, off, yeah. off the Asian food. It, it, exactly. Everybody and else it, takes in beer, cheap beer is what they take in. But I think it's much more elegant to have the prosecco. Now, I, am I? Yeah, well, and also tends not to overpower the food as much. And also a salad. Think of salad. How difficult it is to pair salad ooh. with wine. But with yeah. a prosecco, you you can have a salad, even one that has maybe a little red wine vinegar, not just a balsamic. Without clashing, you, you remember we had a we had a discussion with the chef at that restaurant sixteen. Oh yes, in, in Chicago. Now, because place. because the chef created a special menu for us, and it had two of those Im- impossible to pair wines with asparagus, wasn't it? Asparagus and artichokes. And artichokes, <laughs> Diff- very difficult, <laughs> difficult foods to pair. And again, you know, because of the balance and, and, and kind of the, the nice fruit in Prosecco, you almost can't go wrong. Now, am I, am I right in thinking or am I wrong in thinking that there's also a pink version? No, well, that's a good question. So, uh, there is not. There's not. So, okay. if, there is, if, if somebody's saying Rosé Prosecco, it, it ain't Prosecco. Okay, so, right. I'm, but, so I'm getting but mixed up. There is a, dis- no, you're not, because there's a discussion to to uh, create a, a special designation for Rosé Prosecco. It just has not been decided or approved yet. So as of today, there's no such thing as a Rosé Prosecco. There's definitely Rosé sparkling wine from that region of Italy and, and many other regions of Italy and the world, but there's no such thing as a Rosé Prosecco as of today. Okay, now an, another, um, uh, we're talking about pairing with food, but something that people also don't understand is the designation of um, brewed, dry, extra dry. Run us through those, would you? Well, I mean, that's just a matter of the amount of residual sugar, and uh, it's really about somebody's palate. I prefer the more on the dry side, the brute or even extra brute. Um, I find them just, a little more palatable, Me especially, uh, you know, if it's a hot summer day, I just don't like the sugar. Yeah. But, uh, you know, a lot of Americans like a sweeter wine. So they might get a, you know, a wine with a little bit higher residual sugar. Now, finish um, is different on the palate. You know, a drier yeah. wine tends to finish a little cleaner. Now, um, if people are really interested in all these programs, it seems like a very ambitious program you have with the master classes, the consumer events, um, uh, retailers, uh, uh, promotions, and so forth. How do people find out what's going on and how they can participate? Well, if if people go on com, they'll find uh, retail stores around the country and restaurants around the country that are going to be uh, promoting uh, Prosecco DOC as part of uh, Prosecco Week. So CasaProsecco.com would be the source of information uh, for everything related to Prosecco Week. Can you can you do that slowly for me, Gina? Oh, I'm sorry. So Casa, as in home, C-A-S-A, Prosecco, P-R-O-S-E-C-C-O. Dot com? Dot com? Dot com. Great. Yeah. So anyhow, what? So we're all going to turn after the prosecco, and we're sitting on a couple of bottles that we are going to. We're, when were we going to do that Mother's Day? We didn't do it Mother's Day, so we better do it. My birthday's coming up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that's the thing. Uh, prosecco, I think, has changed the way Americans drink sparkling wine because years ago it was always about a celebration: Mother's uh-huh. Day, birthday, uh, New Year's. Now Americans drink sparkling wine like more like Italians um, 
they drink sparkling wine with food. They drink it as an aperitivo. Right. Even mix prosecco in a cocktail. Yeah, we do that. Yeah, we 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 typically we have a dining group that goes out every every few weeks, and uh, we we'll we'll ch- we'll change up the wine selection that we take in in order to include prosecco or cremant or even or even champagne for that matter because it it does get the meal off to a jolly start. Yes. <laughs> you know, here's an interesting fact. Um, Prosecco, France is now the fourth largest market in the world for Prosecco. You're so kidding. who would think, kind of like bringing, you know, uh, ice to uh, the, the Inuits, but who would bring, who would think that the French are big consumers of Prosecco? But um, I think that's a real measure of success but right why there. why is that, do you think? I mean, Again, I think uh, the approachability of the wine, the affordability yeah. of the wine, the versatility of the wine. Oh, there's a, you know, Prosecco has become not just a phenomenon in the U.S., but also worldwide. Well, I of mean, course by it, itself, Prosecco is driving the growth of Italian wine in, in the United States. So it's responsible for most of the growth of the last couple of years. That's good. And, of course, the Champagne region is having its own problems, too. Well, actually, champagne sales are doing quite well, and, and um, you know, champagne commands a much higher price, so even though the production on Prosecco has exceeded champagne, the value of champagne is still much higher. Um, I think every wine has its occasion. Um, I think Prosecco you, is more of an everyday wine just because of the taste profile and also the price. Well, champagne is, is that special occasion wine. We went to the best book party in the world where the hostess greeted us at the door with our wine, a champagne glass and our own bottle of Dom Perignon. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was quite a party. That's quite a party. <laughs> she, she, had ju- she had just sold a book. <laughs> yeah, she had just sold a book. She was celebrating for yeah, sure and wanted everybody to celebrate with her. So, what else is? Uh, you had a question, Robert, didn't you? It's it's not it's not important if you if you want something different than ice to an Eskimo, try cold to Newcastle. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's a good one. Ba- right, ba- based on ba- based on seventeenth century trading patterns in my native land. <laughs> okay, so so again, the um, this national prosecco and prosecco DOC event is running from the... Yes, so the week of June 3rd, and again, there will be retail store promotions, uh, restaurant promotions for uh, people in the business of wine. Uh, For those lucky people, there will be seminars, there will be pizza and Prosecco parties, uh, Prosecco and and various cuisines, depending on the restaurant that's participating. Um, And all that information is on CasaProsecco.com. Great. Well, now, now we have you. We have. We can't let you go without your tip of the month or t- tip of this visit on the menu radio. Where, have you, where have you tasted recently a wine that has blown your socks off? Oh my gosh! One of the one of the great experiences of my life in wine was about uh, a month ago. I went to the opening of the Massetto Winery in uh, Tuscany on, on the Bulgari coast. Masetto is one of the ethereal wines of great wines of the world and just uh, opened a new winery. And um, we had the opportunity to drink some older vintage Masetto wines and as well as current vintage. And uh, I would say that was a recent highlight, one that I won't forget. No, we, we were actually in that region and with a visiting a, a wine producer who was from the Middle East somewhere, strangely, strangely oh, enough. Oh, yeah, I forgot you remember, about her. You remember, you remember that As couple? a woman, too. Yeah, he, he, her husband was a businessman. And she, she had uh, decided she was going to make wine, and she was, she was making it in the Bulgari region, which is the home, of course, of the famous Sasakaya. Well, and the famous Ornolaya and Massetto, yes. Bulgari yeah. has become one of the hot spots for wine in all of Italy and the world. So, we, had a wonder, um, we had a wonderful time. Yeah, we did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of, it was like the Wild West of Italy. I mean, it was like horse country. Uh, the spaghetti westerns uh, of Sergio Leone were shot there. Mm-hmm. And now it's become just 
the premier wine growing region of Italy. It's yeah, incredible. Just, just south of there is the Maremma, right? We drove through the Maremma. Yes. Yeah, that's a yeah. Yeah. region. It, that's yeah, also that even more so uh, bigger, bigger, wilder kind of area than yeah. Bulgaria. That's fun. I'm anxious to go back. <laughs> Uh, I, 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 me too. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, we hope you'll join but, us. But you know, the nice thing about the Prosecco region is it's only an hour and change from Venice. Yes. So uh, Prosecco, I mean, Prosecco is a big part of the lifestyle of Venice. So you know, that's an area. And then Friuli is not necessarily the yeah. best known area of Italy among Americans, but um, it's a it's a beautiful area with rolling hills and great vineyards yes, and beautiful small there. towns. We say that. Um, um, Bassianich's place there called uh, Orsino. Yeah, yeah. I haven't been to that particular area, but I've been around Udine and to to some of the smaller towns in the region. Yeah, I like that. And of course, the Veneto with Treviso and uh, Cunigliano, which is, uh, and Valdobbiadene, which are the homes of Prosecco. Mm -hmm. Uh, Beautiful little small towns and very reachable from Venice and um, beautiful cultures of, of food and wine. They pat Prosecco on the bar in the breakfast room, so you know that... Uh, Peter drinks that. Yeah, I do. I've got to get off to I a really good... I really have never been able to gotta, do that. got to get off to a good start. I'm, re- I'm reminded of the beautiful little city of Udine. Oh, this gorgeous, we, yeah. we, we had met We had met someone the day before who cooked lunch with us for us at the... Uh, I can't remember the at name. The noni, at the Nonino place. Oh, oh the, yeah, yeah, Nonino Grappa, beautiful. They, yeah, they paired an entire lunch with Grappa, yeah, except yeah, yeah. for one fish course but, but where we got white wine. I wanted, I wanted to, there's a different part of the story. If you remember, we we said, well, we, we'll be in Udine tomorrow. Why don't we come for lunch? He said, absolutely, you must come. So we got to the outskirts, just outside the city walls of Udine, and, and we realized that we couldn't drive through the gate into ah. the city itself. So we called, and the chef answered, and he said, not to worry, I, I come on my bicycle and you follow me. <laughs> <laughs> now, so, so, so he came on his bicycle. What, what we never really found out was how he knew it was us. <laughs> we, we, I we guess we were the only ones daring to go in. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. We, had a, we, had a, we always have fun, Gina, you know that. <laughs> that's yeah and I mean how why not right you're yeah. eating great food and drinking great wine and meeting passionate people who are you know loving what they're doing and uh, yeah yeah and we, nice we're, way to live. We're, we're we're long overdue to spend some more time on wines with Colangelo Gino thank, <laughs> thank, thank you so much for joining us today and much success with the uh, thank you the very episode. much I really appreciate it and Peter yeah. thank you good talking to you bye Okay, so so now you know, and you and you also know to make sure that you find out what activities Prosecco Week is planning in your neck of the woods, as Al Roker would say. Yes. And uh, we, we, we're going to move on after a short break. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Next stop, um, we're going to be switching to gin, which is not actually my most favorite. Uh, there's so much to know about gin, and every time I get a different expression of it, I become enamored of that. And this one is called Gin Mare. And we're going to be talking to Joseph Caro, or I would say, Dear Joe. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and who, who knew, by the way, that they make gin in Spain? We know they consume a good deal. We, yeah, didn't, they, we didn't know they made it, and they didn't know we didn't know they made it so well. And they do, and and and, and they're having and they're, and they're, this one. And they're having a competition, right? They're having a competition for baristas to see who can make the best cocktail with gin mari. I can tell you that, for from my perspective, I just like it in a glass on the rocks, right? 
start off by saying I love this gin mare, the brand that uh, you're representing here. Uh huh. I found it was interesting that you are half English, half Spanish, which means you're half Mediterranean. The style of the gin is Mediterranean, but it flies in the face of traditional English gin. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Indeed. I like it better. Now we we didn't we didn't know as emphatically until our last trip to Spain, which was just uh, two two years ago, that apparently the the cocktail of it was last year. Two thousand seventeen, wasn't it? Was it two thousand eighteen? Eighteen. Yeah, we were anyway, there last year. Anyway, what I did, what we didn't realize until we saw it in the flesh, is that Spaniards love f- fishbowl size gin and tonics as their cocktail. Of <laughs> that, that is true. We do, uh, as we call them in Spain, the bloom glass. They're, they're so big; they're like balloons. Balloons. That, yeah. that, that, that's what it's called, huh? Now, the, the, the history of gin is interesting, and you, you being at least part English, you probably know that gin came over with Prince William of Orange when he came over to marry Queen Mary. And, That's correct, from the Dutch, and from he, the Geneva. And he, and he fed his troops a, a, a large amount of gin each day, and it was called Dutch Courage. <laughs> indeed, indeed. But we, we, it cer- was, we, so. cer- we certainly didn't know that there was an interest in actually making gin in Spain. But, but you're, you're doing that. Can you help explain why? Yes, certainly. Well, uh, gin has always been, uh, before my time, sort of uh, grandparents and uh, other families were drinking gin a long time ago, but it used to be uh, more uh, standard flavored gins, you know, the London Dry, but they were actually used to drink it with Coca-Cola. <laughs> uh, so it's always been around, yeah, yeah. Uh, but recently it had a renaissance uh, in around 2009. Um, 2010 is when we launched in Mari. But, yeah, it began to have a renaissance in the more premium end of the, of the sector. Now, so, it's, uh, it's interesting. You've told me something that I was always... Yeah, we never always, understood this. Always something we never understood. It puzzled me. We were, we were at a restaurant called Casa Dario in, in Barcelona. You may even know it. Uh-huh. And a gent- there was a gentleman who walked, who walked in, sat down on his own, and had lunch. But they they bought him a bottle of gin and a bottle of coke. <laughs> we couldn't figure out why. Uh, we couldn't oh wow! Well, there you go. <laughs> uh, what, 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 what it's, we, what it's we, not often that I see that. What, what we couldn't figure out is how they figured out how much he'd actually consumed. <laughs> <laughs> The idea of gin with Coke is pretty awful anyway. But, <laughs> but Yes, I, I'm, I'm glad we've changed the, the, the consumption um, pattern now. Now, gin, is it gin mare or mare? Mare. Uh, gin mare. mare. So, yeah, so it, it's actually pronounced, it's funny you say that in the UK and, and in America, yes, most people obviously read it as a bottle and, and pronounce it gin mare. But, uh, yeah, it's Jim Mare we pronounce in Spain. Well, it's because it's Mare, sea, ocean, sea. Is that the reason why? That's it. It comes yes. from Mare Nostrum. Oh, okay. All right. Now, the, the, the... So for us, yeah, sorry. But it's, but it's got a very unusual combination of things in it that make it very special. Yes, totally. So the history of the product was uh, it comes from a, a collaboration with uh, uh, the Giro Ribot family uh, and the Vanguard company. So the brand we launched in 2010, and this was after three years uh, of research, um, trying over 45 different uh, botanicals uh, from the Mediterranean uh, to, to get to the product where we are today. So we use uh, eight botanicals, uh, and four of those principal botanicals are rosemary from Greece, uh, thyme from Turkey. Uh, we use the Arbequina olive, which is from Spain, and then we use basil from Italy. So there are four principal botanicals, as we say, from the Mediterranean basin. And then we use the cardamom, we use cilantro uh, seeds, and then we also use uh, our citruses. So our citruses are two types of orange, 
uh, one from Valencia, uh, uh, which is a sweeter style, and then a, a bitter style from Seville. And we also use lemons as well, our citruses, and then obviously the juniper berries as well, uh, which we get locally. Now, the interesting thing is that the, the actual liquid is, is unusual as well, because you distill it from barley, not, not other things that people typically have used to make the, the distillate part of yeah, the gin. That, that's correct. That's correct. We, we felt the barley base uh, worked really well with the uh, botanicals we were using, uh, would really help pronounce uh, our savory and herbaceous flavors coming out of these botanicals. And we're using what we're using here are delicate botanicals. So it's definitely we want to maximize the flavor. One of the things we do in order to maximize the flavor is we distill uh, our botanicals separately. So we leave them to macerate for over 36 hours uh, when it comes down to the uh, the the herb botanicals and our citruses we actually macerate for a year uh, and that really allows us to take out all those flavors and the beautiful oils out of the citruses and the flavors from each of our botanicals I, man, and then I we do our blending it. i love it where is it rather downstairs is it still down there yeah, oh, yeah good. i've been I'm, I'm i've been i've been drinking i've been drinking it i've been drinking it rather slowly because you said you liked it so much yes i do and it's it's mo- it's the most unusual set of botanicals. I'm sure I'm sure you agree. And that was your idea to begin with, anyway. So, yes, that's exactly what we wanted to do. For us, it's about actually exporting the Mediterranean. Uh, so we thought, what better way to show people and invite people to enjoy the Mediterranean uh, than through a Mediterranean style gin using these botanicals? Uh, for us, it's Part of the Mediterranean is not only in its flavors, it's also this sense of sharing, uh, you know, getting people around uh, a table together to enjoy a bottle of Jim Mari, uh, creating the perfect serve, almost disconnecting. I mean, nowadays we live lives with mobile phones, we're so busy, it's almost we're trying to teach people, get back to the old way of appreciate being with your family and friends and enjoy this Mediterranean culture uh, through Jim Mari. Now, you've been rather successful, I think you said, because there are many countries in the world who now have access to this elixir. But, but how, how, did you yes, go, how did you go about doing that? I mean, did you already have a, a superstructure that you could use to distribute gin around the world? Uh, or? Yeah, certainly. I mean, at the beginning, obviously, part of the company, uh, we are, we are a distribution company. Uh, so we've been, we started out, uh, distributing premium waters, uh, in, in across Europe. Uh, and then we moved into the gin. With the gin, we came around at the time when the gin category was actually booming. So we were just at the right time to take advantage of the, the trend, uh, in the gin and tonics, especially in Spain and across Europe. Um, and that's through, obviously, as you mentioned earlier, you know, you enjoy uh, gin in a big glass, uh, lots of ice. So we really made sure we were creating a great product. It's offering people experiences. You know, we're not just about uh, tasting the products. It's about giving people something different to do uh, in a different way of enjoying the product. And, yeah, we've been very successful across Europe, and now we are uh, – pushing within the, U- the U.S. market. Uh, we really believe there's an opportunity for the gin and tonic trend uh, in the United States at the moment, uh, something I'm seeing a lot of my trips. People are really beginning to talk to talk about gin and are really interested to try new craft products. Now, you've got a rather unusual way of making it popular to the cocktail fraternity. So talk, talk to us a little bit about this competition that, that you've had the last several yes. years. Certainly. So we have our competition, which is called Mediterranean Inspirations. So this is our ninth year of running this competition and our third year uh, with the United States. Uh, so it's a competition we've run across the U.S., uh, uh, globally, sorry. Um, and it's something for us is about an opportunity for uh, being us to uh, share our experience uh, with a group of professionals who are passionate about uh, food and drink. So we, don't, we, we call ourselves not any ordinary cocktail competition. Really the aim here is to get together uh, top bartenders who are interested uh, around gin in the category uh, and teach them about gastronomy, uh, have some challenges, have some seminars with my respected chefs. Um, So what we do is this year we have six countries, the USA, Canada, uh, we have across Asia uh, and Mexico as well. And there we have our global, uh, our national final in Malibu. Uh, uh, participants have until the 1st of July to upload their cocktails 
Um, uh, this year we're orientated around the aperitif uh, style cocktail, which is definitely a huge trend as well, which is happening global. Now and then the winners of the finals get to go to Ibiza. Now, Joe, the, 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 the bartenders, they, they enter by sending you their formula written down, right? They, they don't actually... Yeah, we have a website, yeah, which is called MediterraneanInspirations.com, okay. uh, and they can just upload their cocktail recipes within that website. Well, who judges them? So that's uh, judged by our in-house team. So we have obviously a lot of specialists uh, who've been working within the company a long time over a year. Uh, part of our global ambassador, brand ambassador teams uh, will be judging on, on, the, on the cocktails to put through to the people to the final. Then in the final, we'll have a selection of uh, renowned bartenders, uh, trade uh, journalists, and chefs. Can we come to that? <laughs> I'd like that one. Uh, well, I have to try and get you out there, certainly. It's yeah. in Ibiza, right? I love Ibiza. Is it in Ibiza? Yeah, Ibiza's beautiful. Yeah, we, our cousin got married yeah. there. That was fun. Yeah, one, one, of, one of my cousins, oh, wow, that's one of my, my cousins James, he, he called us out of the blue one day and said, if, we, if, we, if me and Max got married in Ibiza, would you come? <laughs> We're there. We, oh, wow. We, we yeah, said, okay. We said, we said, of course, well, well, we didn't realized quite was they were really being sneaky because all they all they had to do if people were questioning whether or not they should go they, they max <laughs> and james would say well ann and peter are coming what's what what's what's your excuse oh, wow. <laughs> what's your i get an employee there yeah <laughs> that's fantastic so yeah i, I try to go to b3 every year it's a it's a great place i'm at some hot DJ. He's well, it was like, a DJ. Yes. Some, yeah. I mean, he has long dreadlocks, and he's like internationally famous as a DJ. He he'd been doing. DJ. Oh, okay, maybe Bob Sinclair. I don't remember the name. He 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 was. He was let's put it this way: he, he spent a fair amount of time out in the sun. <laughs> <laughs> they certainly have a lot of famous DJs out there. Yeah, definitely. well, I mean, was, he, they brought him in from England for the gig. And he was going back to do another gig the following night. Yeah. <laughs> so. Oh, okay, well. So what we try and do with our competitions, perhaps as well, we have the fun of Ibiza, but then we have a great villa, we call it Villa Mari, uh, and that's just on the north of the island, or in a beautiful setting, very more uh, the relaxed part of Ibiza, very quiet, very relaxed, beautiful views, and we just get everybody there to enjoy great food, be together, Jay, uh, you know, I'm and sharing there. cocktail ideas. You don't have to sell me anymore. I'm there. <laughs> Let me know. <laughs> Although I must say that um, we, when we woke up the morning after the wedding, uh, most of the guests were just coming back from their night out. <laughs> I, I think Ibiza is the, they say, the place where most people miss their flights. Yes. <laughs> Probably. I love that. I love that. They, 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 dan- they danced on the beach till they couldn't do it anymore, and then they lay down to sleep. We, we understand. We were I not. We were not in that part. We were. We, we saw. We saw them the next morning, and they were not looking all that well. I bet. So now, anyhow, um, what is your background, Joe? Yeah, uh, I've been. Currently, well, I've been working with uh, Jim Murray for seven years, well, just over seven years uh, since we've launched, uh, working hard to uh, exactly develop the brand, building us uh, across the across the countries. Uh, I've pretty much been in spirits uh, since I finished university. I grew up in London and, and then moved to Spain uh, when I was 26. Uh, so I wanted to, you know, I'd always wanted to move to Spain, live in Spain, so I moved there, and it's been great. I've been there 13 years, and it's definitely... Uh, a great place to have good quality of life. You know, I think London's fantastic, but it can be uh, very busy. Uh, and now I'm enjoying living in Spain, but coming to the America uh, once a month, you know, really trying to uh, get the brand going there and meeting new people and understanding the market. Do you live in Madrid? I live in Madrid, yeah. Beautiful city. I always recommend to people if they get the chance, it's a great, uh, a great city for like a weekend uh, visit. You could tap it on to any other uh, visit in Spain or within Europe. Uh, have some great museums. We went, uh, there, we went there for Christmas. We went there for Christmas one year. Yeah, we did. We spent we spent eight, oh, eight, eight, eight to ten days across the Christmas holiday. And my most favorite memory oh, was when we were there for Easter and we saw 
No, it was the Feast of the Corpus Christi. It was, right? in, Sevilla, in, Sevilla, was in, Sevilla, in Sevilla. In Sevilla. And, and, oh, fantastic. Yeah, and all these guys were carrying these life-size statues that weighed a ton. There'd be yeah, like eight people. That's correct, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and they'd go a little bit, and then they'd have to set it down so that they could rest. And uh, they started out, their whole tradition was they were all barefoot. But by the time we were there watching, they were all wearing sneakers. They were wearing, they were wearing Nike sneakers. No, they weren't Nike. I had the idea that I would like to sell the idea to Nike. There would be a great ad when they, yeah, when they put down the, yeah. Don't you think that's good for an ad? That's brilliant. Yeah. Oh well. Uh, indeed. Do well. Why listen, don't you do that, Jim? Yeah, listen, You're give, sales. Give, give, give our love to Barcelona. We were we were there. Was it two? I, I'm sure. Yeah, it was last year. Was we last, were at the Walls 50 Best in Bilbao and San Sebastian. And we spent a week in uh, Barcelona. We went to several several of Barcelona's best, absolute best restaurants. Uh, you were you were in the 50 Best. Did you oh, say? Yeah, yes, yes. The, yeah. Ah, we we actually sponsor that with Jim Murray. We're we're the official gym sponsor. Oh, so really? I would have I was there as well. So we would have missed it. We oh, would have missed uh, ourselves. Oh, yeah, yeah. So are you going we this year? So. This year it's in uh, Singapore. Yeah, uh, Singapore. I won't be. Unfortunately, yeah. yeah, it's in Singapore. I won't be attending, but definitely our team will be attending. So I'll. Uh, I'll uh, get them to, to catch up with you guys. And say, Hi. We'll have our Jim Murray stand there, so you'll be able to uh, try some Jim Murray. Yeah. We're, 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 we're going to skip this it's, year. It's a bit far. Ah, okay. Uh, the, yeah, a little bit. It was Spain last year. The year before that, we went to Melbourne, Australia. Right, right. Yeah, and uh, this year Excellent. it's going to be. And, and we're also in Lima, Peru. Uh, and then for years it was in London, which was really convenient. But Singapore seems a bit of a stretch because you have to once you take make that trip, you got to hang out and hang around for a few weeks. And then after Definitely. all that travel, yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, well, so okay. Well, if if you get, if you if, when you I will, I will say I won't say if you have another adventure, I'm sure you will have another adventure, Joe. So you must keep in touch with us and let us yeah. know when. When you have something more that our listeners can enjoy hey, we're drinking, we're going to a pizza. Thank you. And we're yeah, are we going to a pizza? Oh, we are. Okay, <laughs> very good. That's it. <laughs> Fantastic. Joe, thank you so, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, and who, who are you? Who are you supporting? Spurs versus Liverpool. Oh, I don't know if I can say. <laughs> I, mean, I think it's better that I, I stay out of that one. <laughs> I mean, you, will, you will have a ticket, right? It's in Madrid. It's in Madrid, indeed, indeed. Uh, I don't have a ticket yet, but I, I, I might be able to access one. So, yeah, it's going to be a good match, I think. I think so, too. Be, Madrid is going to be very busy. I'm sure, I'm well, sure it will be. Joe, once again, thank you so much for being a part of the program, and uh, we wish you well with your Jin Mari. Jin Mari. That's great. Thanks, thank you both very much. We hope to speak soon. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Well, we're going to jump now from gin to rum. Not a good idea if you're at a party, but <laughs> and the scope of our program is perfectly fine. And we're going to be talking to Michael Jurgens, who is going to talk to us about an award-winning rum called SoCal Silver Rum, which and, is and, splendid. And, and then, <laughs> and then, get cop this. Wait, wait till you hear about. Vines being grown in Bhutan. Yes. In the Himalayas. Because Mike's doing that too. <laughs> I think you're mad. I think you're mad. In the nicest possible way. Pre- pretty mad to stop making white rum in Southern California. But we'll get to the really mad part when it comes to growing grapes in Bhutan just a little bit later.
<laughs> both of those are, uh, are are definitely ideas that are slightly out of the norm. I will grant you that. They are. So, 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 so let's start first with the one that's already a prize winner. And not Alrighty. only that, a prize winner at a very respected competition. Tell us the story of SoCal. Sure. Well, I think this all started uh, with um, uh, a, a very good friend of mine and, and my son, who are both rum aficionados, and uh, were, were bemoaning the lack of of options available on the market. And uh, you know, if you if you if I asked you to, to name a premium vodka, I'm sure you could name twenty without thinking. If I asked you to name a premium tequila, you could name 20 without thinking. But if I asked you to name a premium silver rum, and I, and I have asked many people this question, um, they come up with Bacardi pretty quickly, and then it falls off really, really fast. Now, now just, explain, the difference, are, explain the difference between a white rum and a silver rum and a dark rum. So there, there's actually more nuance to it than, than that, but maybe okay. let's put it in categories of aged rum versus flavored rum, okay. because I think that's a little bit easier to understand. So if you were to have an aged rum, you would you would make a rum, and then you would age it typically in, in oak barrels for a certain amount of time, and that certain amount could be a year up to 10 years. Right. And the longer it ages in oak, the more it softens and oxidizes, and the more... Um, color and flavor enters into the rum. At the same time, um, you have tons of different options for flavoring rums. And, and we see, you know, coconut rums and coffee-flavored rums and spiced rums, obviously, are extremely popular. Uh, many, many options for spiced rums on the marketplace. So a white or a silver rum would, would be a rum that is neither um, aged for a long time nor flavored. Okay. So our rum has three ingredients. It has water, yeast, and uh, and sugar, and that's it. And the sugar, and the sugar, the sugar is in what form, Mike? The, uh, the sugar is what? In in what form? I mean, is it sugar cane? Is it molasses? What 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 is the sugar derivative, if you like, that you're starting with? Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that because sure, sugar sure. gets very very interesting. So sugar, when you when you take sugarcane and you press it, the the first press is the purest, and that would be sort of equivalent to like free-run um, grape juice or extra virgin olive oil. And then each subsequent press, um, it becomes lower and lower quality. And so there's five levels that are fit for human consumption. The sixth level is available, but we it's not allowed for use in food products. That fifth level is blackstrap molasses. Um, okay. So you can kind of tell you, you your your first press is this really clear um, white juice, and you know each subsequent press gets you know dirtier and thicker until you end up with the blackstrap molasses. But it all comes from the same sugar cane product. It's just a matter of which press. So we use for our rum, we use the first press. We use the highest possible grade of of sugar cane that you can that you can get, and our Competitors in this space use the fifth, the blackstrap molasses. Uh-huh. And I think that's one of the real distinctions that makes our rum so, so clean and so fresh tasting. Now, when you, um, when you get, when you say you get it, where do you actually source it from? It doesn't, doesn't grow in Southern California that I heard of. It does not grow in Southern California. So we source it from a company here in California who sources it from uh, different locations around the world. And we have not, um, been really uh, prescriptive about, you know, this needs to be from Barbados or this needs to be Jamaican sugar cane or whatever because we're taking that first press. So we know that that first press is always going to be of a suitable quality level and also has to meet FDA requirements to even be certified as first press. So we let them deal with the global supply chain issues, and as long as they're giving us the first press, we're okay with it. Okay, now, now the, the, the physical location where your distillery, would you call it a distillery? I guess you would call it a distillery. Is in Costa Mesa, California. Wh- where is that exactly? So our company is located in Costa Mesa, California, which is very, it's right between Newport Beach and Huntington Beach, um, about 
uh, 40 miles south of L.A. Okay, on the, on the way to San Diego. On the way to San Diego, yeah, it's it's right. You know, you get Huntington Beach, you get Newport Beach, you get Laguna Beach. It's it's right, right in there, little coastal town. Our distillery is actually not located in Costa Mesa. There are no distilleries allowed in that city yet. Okay. So we use a distillery that's located in a little town called San Marcos, which is just north of San Diego. Okay, and you and you're you're working on the state to, to, to license distilleries in other counties and places, just like everybody else in the country is, I guess. That's, that's correct, yeah. And, and it's, it's, uh, we also, you know, the, the city has not decided that distilleries are the type of things that they would want in the city limits yet. So there, there's a lot of moving parts to actually creating a distillery in Costa Mesa. Um, and we may find that we never do that. We may find that, you know, our current arrangement is sufficient for our, our purposes. Okay now, okay, now how how would you describe SoCal functionally, if you like? Is is it a sipping rum? Is it a is it a cocktail making rum? What what, what market are you aiming at? We are one hundred percent aiming at the cocktail market. Okay, so there are lots of options for for sipping rum. Our goal is to make. If you want to make a mojito or a pina colada or a rum and coke and you don't want it to have a real heavy acetone or gasoline taste, you just want it to be pure and fresh and clean, um, that's our entire strategy right there. Okay. You'd also go into daiquiris, I guess, right? Yep. Yep. Any any sort of a, a cocktail drink. And we actually have a number of cocktails that we've invented that um, that we believe are, are really showcase. Our, our product as well. Tell us a couple of those, sure. Well, so I'll tell you what my, one of my favorites is, um, and we call it a SoCaliente, um, but it is it is essentially a mojito with sriracha uh, pepper juice in it. Okay, and, interesting, interesting. Oh, it's fantastic. And, and what makes it really unique is you get a spice from the pepper and you get a coolness from the mint, and you get this clear citrus taste of the rum, and somehow all of those work together the best. And uh, that's that's one of those drinks that everybody loves. And also, it's got a little bit of a Southern California flair to it because it's you know got a little bit of spice. And sriracha is also made locally here in Southern California, so we, we kind of like that. They make it in California, our, uh, local colleagues. They, they make the sriracha there. They do, yep, yeah. just north of us. So uh-huh. it's uh, nice to just be able to support the local businesses. Oh, yeah, sure. Now, you've been, you've been in business for not, not very long, right? That's right. Our, we um, worked on the recipe for quite some time, actually a, a number of years, trying to perfect it. And then um, we had our first production uh, began in November of last year. So it's been on the market about five months. Now, Boy, that's now how, recent. How come you managed to haul off with one of the biggest prizes there is in the spirits market? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a big deal. Did you, did you bribe the judges with SoCal, or what did you do? I, you know, we were we were just as astounded by that as you, to be, to be quite frank. We, um, we, when we made this, we thought, this is perfect. This is exactly what we were trying to do, and everyone that, that drank it was like, this is fantastic stuff and um so someone said hey you shot us submit it to to the san francisco you know awards and see what happens and we said oh they'll never pay attention to us <laughs> we, we walked off with the gold medal and uh we were like wow uh un- unbelievable and it was kind of validation that our our palettes were, were pretty spot on right and, and and you had a connoisseur in the family anyway right we we did, yep, exactly. And to be honest, I'm more of a wine person than a rum person. But uh-huh. um, my my palate is is pretty strong um, for kind of flavors and and quality. And so, you know, even for me, I was like, this is probably the best rum I've ever had in my life. There you go. Okay. Well, well, we're we're sipping at it right. We're sipping at it right now ourselves. So uh, we'll have, we'll have to try these cocktail combinations. Maybe maybe you can send us an email with the with the formulas in. Well, 
it's it's interesting, yeah, that, that you know you're treating it as a sipping rum. A lot of times when you have a uh, a silver rum or a white rum, it's really not a sipping rum. And I'll I'll tell you, like one of our competitors that sure. makes their product out of um, the blackstrap molasses, they actually need to age it in oak for a year, and then they filter back out the color. But they need to do it just to to get the the bite of it palatable for 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 drinking ours we don't we don't age at all it's ready to, to drink as, as soon as you can go and you can drink it as a sipping rum and it's 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 totally pleasant it's not offensive at all but it really shines in cocktail we need to go on to your next adventure because if yeah and my if, question about this blue tent is why <laughs> <laughs> well um in my opinion, and by the way, I will preface this by saying that I am—I have been studying for years to qualify as a as a master of wine, um, and, and I'd be only, I think, the forty third American to ever qualify for that industry standard. Oh, good man! I'm, I'm, yeah, right, right on the verge of, of I take my hopefully final exam in about three weeks. But um, so I'm, I'm very into wine, and I've traveled the world looking at wine regions all over the place. The first time I went to Bhutan, I was shocked at how perfect the conditions were for grape growing. And I finally had the opportunity to talk to some pretty senior people in the government. And I said, hey, where are the vineyards? I want to go check them out. We <laughs> here. And, they, and they said, what are you talking about? We, we don't have any vineyards. And I'm like, how could you not have vineyards? This place is perfect for vineyards. Well, now, now hold, and, on, uh, hold on just a second. The second highest mountain in the world is in Bhutan. You're not growing grapes on top of that, are you? <laughs> no, no. Uh, uh, what's it called? Gangsheng Pankar or something like well, that. Well, there's one, called K, there's one called K2. Yeah, well, K2, I think, is not quite within um, in Bhutan. I think it's more Pakistan. But oh, the, okay. highest unclimbed, right. the highest unclimbed mountain in the world uh, is in Bhutan. It's about 25,000 feet. And it will never be climbed because it's kind of sacred. But the country <laughs> itself, um, the country itself rages from about... 300 feet in altitude at the at the southern tip, all the way up to 25,000 feet. So, in that range, you get every climate possible, from jungle to temperate to modern, moderate to cool to you know glacier. So, Got the, it, okay. there's sort of like Peru. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so uh, you know, I I um, immediately looked at it and said this this place is perfect for for grape growing, and then. I tried to convince the, the government there that they ought to build a wine industry. And I, I did this just because I was passionate about it. I thought it would be cool to go there and go wine tasting. And so I, I um, you know, wrote them a business plan. I, I did a lot of research uh, for them and, and explained all the reasons why. I outlined my, my thinking around how they would structure it. I helped... Um, uh, come up with a draft for a set of wine laws and regulations and, and did all this stuff. And, and at the end they said, you know, would you help us? And I said, <laughs> I thought about it long and hard, and, and then I said, you know what, this is just too good an opportunity to pass up. I, I truly believe it's the last viable wine frontier in the world. Um, the wine that hasn't anybody ever thought about it before. Well, first of you all, know, first of all, they're Buddhists, right? Do they're they, Buddhists, do, yeah. Do, do I they, mean, I would say you have a lot more issues besides just the climate to deal with in Bhutan. <laughs> well, the, they are Buddhist, but they um, they are very fun-loving Buddhist people, and they they definitely enjoy um, uh, a fair bit of, of alcohol over there. Oh, okay. So. Uh, yeah, I know a lot. Well, Eric repairs Buddhists, and he drinks. Yeah. Yeah, and, and our goal is is also to not make a cheap product that we would sell in the country to the citizens. We want to make a very high end terroir based product that we would export to the global markets. Now we we've, we've so. been having a lot of discussions recently with a variety of guests about this squirrely thing called terroir. But so so what's the terroir advantage in Bhutan? Well, the terroir advantage um, is the the soil is very diverse. Um, you have lots of slopes, which are fantastic for growing grapes. You oh, have okay. got it, got the it. only carbon negative country in the world. Ooh, well, that's pretty cool. You have 
It's pretty cool. And they're actually on track to become the only, the first 100% organically farmed country in the world. They are very into environmental sustainability and harmony with the environment, which is perfect for growing um, growing high-quality grapes. You also have, you know, Himalayan water. <laughs> That's pretty pure water. Is it? Plastic, free of microplastics. There's no glyphosate or some of the other issues that plague some of the soil conditions elsewhere. It's pristine. It's untouched. And they grow today, they grow some of the world's best crops. They grow the best cardamom in the world. They grow the best mandarin oranges in the world. They grow the best red rice in the world. But no one's ever thought about wine. And we, I just happen to be in the right place at the right time, talking to the right people with the right mindset, and it all grew into this glorious opportunity. So how far along are you yeah, now? What's, what's the time frame on this? Well, so we just planted the first uh, six vineyards. Um, lots of planning. <laughs> went into this years of planning and analysis and, and everything. We, we got the first grapes in the ground uh, just about a month ago. And oh, okay. We'll have, What's that new? We'll huh? have, yeah. So we're, we're off to the races, and we're trying a bunch of different varietals and a bunch of different rootstocks, and we're trying different microclimates in different regions of the country because, like I said, there's a lot of diversity. So we have a couple higher-altitude, cooler spots, a couple lower-altitude, uh, warmer spots, and a couple in the middle. Now, how will, how, how will you actually – will you make wine in Bhutan, or, or will you – cut the grapes off somewhere else? I mean, what's what's the plan there? The plan is to build a winery okay, there. Okay, got it. Um, and so we don't have to deal with the, the, the harm that can befall grapes when you transport them uh, ahead of time. Because we're trying things out in different parts of the country, we want to put the, the winery wherever the, the best sites start to, to evolve. Okay, and, and, and you're so, not sure whether you're not just sure which one, which those will be just now, right? We are not quite sure yet, but we're we're monitoring. I actually have a a, a pretty good idea. It's going to be in one of two spots, but I'm holding off building anything until we actually see the grapes that are coming out, um, and we won't know that until next year. Now, if somebody well, you said that the 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 Bhutanese among other things are probably among the best in the world in agriculture. They are revered for their sustainable agricultural practices. And I have people from all over the world go to Bhutan to learn how to do sustainable agriculture. Oh, no kidding. That's interesting. That's amazing. Now, if, pe- if people want to track this, are you going to have a, a website which sort of lets the yep, world know a, wh- where you are? Yep, there's a website, and it's bhutanwine.com. Um, we also have a Twitter and an Instagram feed where we kind of post pictures of the grapes as they develop and, and other things that are, are interesting to us. I think, um, yeah, our, yesterday we posted our, our, the first wine dog, uh, in, in Bhutan. We got some nice photos <laughs> of dogs in the vineyards. Um, so yeah, other things that people find interesting, but they're, they're certainly welcome to follow our progress. It's a very, very interesting project and I, I have, I have high hopes that it will be um, very successful. Curiously enough, uh, Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy has a very, very similar project in a very similar terroir to ours right on the other side of the border in China. Oh, and no they kidding. Make, and, they, and there they make uh, some of the best Cabernet in China. It sells for about $300 a bottle, which is pretty pricey for Chinese wine. So you can mm-hmm. imagine the level of quality. Well, I, I, I just can't imagine... What you would do next, Michael? I'm, uh, I'm, uh, we're, you're already astounded as at least two or three times. We wish you the very best and come come back and talk to us when you have more of these wonderful adventures. And Thank he, you. I'd be happy to any time. Uh, best of luck, and I appreciate you having me on the show. Uh, listen, I mean, I think it's all very exciting. And um, when do you find out uh, about your certification, your your uh, sommelier thing? Yeah, so I take the test. So I failed the, the tasting portion the last year, uh, and so I'm retaking the just the. Oh, were you part of that group that got? They had to throw the results out because of that one judge. No, so that's actually the master sommelier certification. Oh, that was that right? And I'm doing master of wine, which is it's slightly different. different. Um, yeah, so for example, the master sommelier when they do their final tasting, they taste six wines in 25 minutes. Yes, I taste. 
I taste 36 wines over three days. Good grief. And I have to write a paper about each one of them. So it's, it's a little bit different certification. But it, I failed the tasting last year. I'll take it again this June. Uh, and then I find out uh, the Sunday before Labor Day whether I pass. So well, knocking well, on wood, well, fingers good, crossed. Good luck. And you, you, you must call and tell us either way. I will yeah, be so happy I'd, to do that. I'd love to know, you know, truly. Oh, Michael, you, you have an exciting life. <laughs> well, we, we we try to keep things interesting. That's for sure. That's for the sure. It is. Projects are <laughs> interesting. Boy, I'm, well, I, I'm really I'm glad we finally pulled this together and got to talk to you. And uh, I can hardly wait to just follow your progress and keep up on how you succeed with all of this. Well, I, I very much appreciate the interest in our in our little projects. I, of course, think they're ridiculously interesting, but I recognize not everyone is is, is nerdy about these things as I am. Oh, I am nerdy. <laughs> Thank you for talking to us. Thanks again for having me, Anna, Peter. Bye-bye. Really appreciate- It makes you wonder what all those guys who tried to climb Everest are having, <laughs> having their backpacks. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm sure this is not the last time we will hear from this young man, this enterprising young man. Yeah, and, uh, we'll, what interesting people we meet, huh? And we'll, and we'll be sure to bring them to you. So same time, same place next week, we'll have more fascinating stories of food, wine, and travel. So be sure to join us then. And until then, bye-bye.